Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, officials from the U.S. and China meet to discuss economy and trade. Reports say bolts were missing from door in Boeing's blowout incident in early January. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees is moving to ask for help from Gulf countries in a bid to narrow its funding gap. And eight major global tech companies have committed to ethical artificial intelligence in collaboration with UNESCO. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching "World Today." The Economic Working Group of the U.S. and China have met here in Beijing to discuss trade concerns and some broader economic issues. The meeting involved senior officials from China's Ministry of Finance and the U.S. Department of Treasury, among other government agencies. Chinese officials have expressed their concerns regarding increased U.S. tariffs against the Chinese products and two-way investment restrictions and sanctions targeting Chinese companies. The working group was established in September 2023. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Liu Baochen, director of the Center for International Business Ethics with the University of International Business and Economics. So thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Liu.、Um, one talking point during this meeting is the macroeconomic outlook for both the U.S. and China. So how would you、uh, rate the importance of this particular talking point?、Um, covering this meeting, some U.S. media actually suggested that the U.S. is proving to be the most resilient economy in the world. While China continues to be haunted by a troublesome financial industry, what is your thought in this regard? Well, on the fundamental side, they are the largest two economies in the world, and both of them have a also a very strong resilience against some of the headwinds produced both domestically and on the global front. And uh, the uh, challenges are really different. The、uh, the U.S.、Uh, does really have a、uh, robust economy after the、uh, quick recovery from the pandemic, and、uh, through my visit、uh, two months ago to the United States, I found that uh, uh, restaurants are filled with people, and、uh, small and medium-sized enterprises are uh, on the uh, rapid race of、uh, recovery. And uh, China uh, is still rather resilient, given its、uh, great manufacturing capacity and also the、uh, some of the Chinese government policies in supporting、uh, the critical industries,、uh, particularly in the area of innovation. Uh, however, uh, the challenge on both sides are still very obvious. The U.S. is also facing、uh, instability and also the uh, are the uh, Stretched by a number of domestic politics and also global geopolitical issues, and China is also facing a headwind in、uh, dealing with the、uh, local debt issue, dealing with the freight,、uh, the real estate issues, and so therefore、uh, uh, that is why it is important for this、uh, two economies to have dialogue. Uh, you know,、uh, so that they can build a better understanding. Because after all, the interdependence,、mm-hmm. uh, you know, between the two biggest economies is、uh, still very strong, and there is no way,、uh, you know, there is a complete decoupling. Okay, so both sides have voiced their respective concerns during this meeting. The concerns of China are, of course, the U.S. tariffs against the Chinese products. And also the way in which the U.S. government has treated Chinese companies, which from China's perspective has been very unfair, and the U.S. concern, according to the U.S. official statement, are the alleged、um, industrial overcapacity in China.、Uh, of course, you know better than I do because these、um, these complaints are not really new. But do you think、um, there is any possibility for some? Measures for some concrete measures to be taken to address these concerns. I think it's the very beginning since September last year.、Uh, both sides have settled、uh, on this、uh, 
the working mechanism uh, between the uh, leaders in the financial and commercial circle. And uh, at least, you know, the uh, both sides can really come down to see the fact uh, in a more concerted fashion uh, instead of uh, uh, what we call chicken talking with a duck. Mm. So uh, the, the other is that uh, uh, both also, uh, you know, uh, have agreement with regard uh, to what is really a fair play uh, in the market economy. So the trade protectionism in the uh, form of tra- uh, of trade tariff and the non-tariff barriers and uh, technological sanctions uh, definitely are really denied by the uh, fairness of a free market economy, uh, in which actually China was lectured by the United States. Now they are doing the opposite. And they and also that uh, uh, China uh, is uh, on a, a steady pace of institutional reform by further opening store, in which uh, the uh, main stay is the uh, to provide a level playing field that treat equally uh, both uh, you know foreign companies, inclusive the United States, and, and domestic companies uh, uh, between private sectors and SOEs. And this is the uh, way that China is moving, but of course, uh, we are not there yet. Okay, so the U.S. delegation reportedly said it does not wish to decouple economies, but instead uh, wants to seek to continue a strong and healthy economic relationship that will provide a, a quote-unquote a level playing field for American companies and American workers. Now, whether that's um, that's entirely in line with the actual practice of the U.S. government, I guess there is some degree of skepticism on 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 the part of the Chinese government. But from China's perspective, Professor Liu, what kind of economic relationship with the United States uh, do you think um, China wants? Well. Uh... The presidency actually proposed mutual respect, the uh, peaceful coexistence, and the mutual benefit. Uh, the U.S. proposed, you know, cooperation, the competition, and uh, if necessary, uh, the confrontation. So they uh, they focus on different points, um, which is also reflective of the realities uh, from uh, both perspectives. Uh, however, uh, one thing that is undeniable is that. Uh, the interdependence uh, cannot really be decoupled, and now they shift the word to uh, uh, to de-risking. But the uh, the fundamental issue is that the trust is not there yet. So therefore, both sides are playing a uh, vigilant the uh, view uh, over the other and see how they can re- really react. And in actuality, they overreacted to certain of the misunderstandings. And China want the uh, a free trade issue, and based on WTO rules and uh, uh, the trade sanctions, embargoes on technology are not really fair. And the U.S. you know wanted to to see okay, uh, you, you China enjoys such a high level of capacity and uh, a predatory type of uh, export drive, and so this is really the difference. And as a matter of fact, you know uh, both of us are facing. The reality, the fact that China's overcapacity is true, but uh, we're not really uh, uh, satisfying the domestic market. And the U.S. workers are losing their jobs because they lose competition, because multinational companies, they make their own uh, independent decisions with regard yeah. where is more profitable. So I think, you know, to clarify some of the issues, uh, it's very important for, uh, for both sides really to move forward for some concrete measures. Mm. So one issue that is relevant somehow in this uh, bigger U.S.-China economic relationship is that, um, according to multiple media reports recently, uh, the outlook of Biden's Indo-Pacific economic framework uh, looks increasingly dim as many U.S. Democratic politicians uh, want to woo U.S. voters who are somehow skeptical towards um, free trade ahead of this year's U.S. presidential election. Now, we understand when this IPEF was announced uh, back in 2022, it was in many ways 
seen as a U.S.-led attempt to counter China's economic influence in the Indo-Pacific region or in the Asia-Pacific region. Now, regarding the current scenario facing this initiative, what do you think、um, the situation here tells us? Well,、uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework、uh, has never been bright; it is dim. So,、uh, because the U.S. doesn't really have a very structured view、uh, over their Indo-Pacific strategy, it is more of a political rhetoric that they they deal with. And of course, you know, they have the intention to、uh, really to strengthen their ties with the uh, uh, Indo-Pacific countries. Uh, but they do not really come up with some of the realistic、uh, promises, realistic、uh, framework. The fact that Trump withdraw from the T-、uh, TPP, which was very concrete, shows that U.S. was uh, uh, really hesitant. That uh, uh, they really wanted to get the benefit, but without really、uh, honoring their commitment. And so now the、uh, one uh, the slight success is that they canvassed some of the countries. Uh, to uh, get into ally with some of the rhetorics with the United States with regard to geopolitical issues, and also they、uh, they built the Chip Four,、uh, which is、uh, producing some of the、uh, benefit to the United States. But other than that, I do not think they are really seriously engaging into、uh, forging any type of free trade agreements or any type of uh, uh, collaboration uh, in a structured fashion.、Hmm. So, Professor Liu, usually we tend to see a lot of harsh political comments or political rhetoric about China on trade or economic issues during a particular、um, presidential election year over there in the United States. So, with that in mind, to what extent do you think this meeting mechanism of this particular、um, China-U.S. economic working group? Uh, could work in in terms of, say, preventing further escalation of hostilities between the two sides. Well, politicians they always well wear a double mask and they seek the benefit because the constituencies with、uh, when they feel their household is being pinched by. Uh, 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 excessive tariff over the importation, either from China or from any other countries, they complain. So they have to please their constituencies, and、uh, on the other, they have to identify enemy even without. So therefore,、uh, so that they can re- really rally support and paint a ugly picture over someone they don't like. And uh, uh, in the end, you know,、uh, it is really、uh, the tangible benefits, the economic collaboration, and the the healthy. Uh, relationship between these two e-、uh, biggest economies will、uh, really benefit,、uh, you know, to individual households and also American workers and also China because、uh, you know uh, the uh, de-escalation uh, of the、uh, tension between the United States and、uh, and China will also、uh, not only help、uh, the Chinese companies for their export. But also for、uh, multinational、uh, to,、uh, to really to seek their market entry, and also to cover the global market、uh, between China and the rest of the world.、Mm, that was Professor Liu Baochun from the University of International Business and Economics. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hey everyone, Jason Smith here, host of the Bridge. Hey guys, this is He Yang with Roundtable. This is Xu Yawen with World Today. May the year of the Chinese dragon bring you a tide of strength, success, and good fortune. May you be great and unstoppable as a dragon soaring through the oceans. 蛟龙得水，事业腾飞。And I want to wish you, your families, and loved ones good luck, happiness, and prosperity in the new year. I would like to wish you 龙年大吉，大展宏图 ，and may you achieve great success in your endeavors. Happy Chinese New Year! 新年快乐。You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Chinese Vice President Han Zhen has met with Swiss Foreign Minister Enia Tsiao Cassis in Beijing. Han Zhen said China and Switzerland have established a strategic partnership marked by innovation, suggesting it has already become a model of cooperation between countries with different social systems, stages of economic development, and sizes. For his part. 
Cassis said Switzerland is willing to carry out exchanges at all levels, deepen cooperation, and push bilateral ties to a new level. In the meantime, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi and Cassis have also jointly held a new round of the bilateral foreign ministers' strategic dialogue here in Beijing. So joining us now on the line is Professor Cui Hongjian from the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So, what do you think the Swiss Foreign Minister is looking at or is looking for in his trip to China this time around? I think first of all, the、uh, visit by the、uh, Switzerland、uh, Foreign Minister is finishing the、uh, also in the conventional、uh, exchange dialogue with his、uh, counterpart in China, and also it's a showcase to China the Switzerland relations. Uh, keep uh, stability in the past years. Also, you know now、uh, after COVID nineteen and also in the background of the more and more geopolitical tensions, I think、uh, to keep a、uh, uh, stable uh, exchange and uh, then uh, find out some further、uh, opportunity of cooperation become a very important、uh, task for both two countries.、Mm. And of course, at this moment, I think the.、Uh, To have some、uh, deep exchange with China and to find some more solutions、uh, to deal with、uh, any challenges, including geopolitical tension, geoeconomic issues, or some other even regional and global governance issue, I think it would be on the agenda、uh, mm. for both two ministers. Yeah, so multiple missions in this particular trip. Now, actually, last month China and Switzerland issued a joint declaration to bolster an existing、uh, bilateral FTA free trade agreement. What do you think have been achieved since、uh, that very existing deal was signed back in the year 2013? And what kind of Uh, potentials or opportunities? Do you think remain to be tapped further in this regard? As we know, Switzerland is one of the、uh, Western economy、mm. uh, to have this uh, 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 free agreement uh, of trade uh, with China, and it should up to、uh, this、um, text of these、uh, relations between China and Switzerland、uh, in the name of uh, uh, innovation. And、uh, in the past ten、uh, years, I think this uh, uh, trade cooperation between、uh, two economies achieved a lot, especially against uh, uh, against of the against the what、uh, the economy uh, challenges and also some、uh, issue like、uh, value chain and、uh, industry chain、uh, safety. I think both two、uh, economies showed a very very uh, uh, big. Uh, stability, and uh, uh, I think it also get some more benefits for both two sides. But of course, I think uh, uh, in the future, both two countries、uh, could have some more opportunities in some new areas, including、uh, as we know how both two、uh, countries to share some more uh, consensus uh, to protect or to promote the safety of the industry and、uh, supply chain. Mm. And also now, China released a lot of uh, uh, favorable uh, policies, including、uh, some open opening up some uh, servers and uh, uh, banking, uh, you know,、uh, areas. I think it will also give some more uh, 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 positive message to Switzerland. Hmm. So another recent headline in terms of the bilateral relationship is China's announcement of a visa-free policy for citizens from Switzerland. Now, currently, there are more than one thousand Swiss companies that are operating here in China. With that in mind, Professor Tsui, to what extent do you think this particular, you know, visa-free policy on on a part of the Chinese government could help boost, say, the the economic ties or the business ties between China and Switzerland? Also, you know, even the、uh, COVID nineteen、uh, passed, but、uh, now、uh, still, I think for the market, for the uh, uh, free movement uh, between peoples,、uh, still、uh, facing some.、Uh, You know barriers,、mm. but now、uh, from Chinese side to have this uh, uh, visa-free policy, 
uh, undoubtedly it will give some more positive message to uh, its uh, partners, including Switzerland. As we know, because of the uh, uh, very frequent exchange between two countries, so it's uh, very necessary for both sides to promote this, uh, uh, you know, more favorable environment for uh, investment and also for uh, trade and also for people-to-people contact. Mm. I think certainly, uh, once China uh, had had this policy, I think it will give it will get some more positive uh, response from Switzerland and some other countries. I think it's just a, a first step uh, for both sides to promote exchange and then to promote some more mutual trust. Hmm. So by definition, of course, Switzerland is a member of the Western countries, that's for sure. But on the other hand, Professor Tsui, in your understanding, do you think Switzerland has a relatively independent policy on China-related affairs? Uh, Switzerland is a, a, a very, I think, a specific uh, country. Hmm. Uh, it's small uh, according to the territory and the population, but at the same time, it's strong. Uh, I think the reason of the uh, you know strength of uh, Switzerland, uh, partly or mainly from its um, relative uh, independent policy. As we know, uh, Switzerland is not only a country and also the uh, you know the center or the uh, hub house for some uh, international organization. Yeah. So I think it shows that uh, Switzerland has some uh, ambitions to uh, develop uh, a more healthy and a more stable relations with all of the uh, uh, you know countries, including China. So I think it gives a lot of the, uh, uh, I mean, ability, capability to Switzerland to have its uh, independent policy. And of course, I think uh, to uh, strengthen uh, its relations with China uh, in the Western countries, undoubtedly, it will also give another or some more capability for Switzerland to keep its uh, independent policy. Mm. Now, of course, in the meantime, we understand Switzerland is actually not a member of the European Union, but compared to many other non-EU countries in continental Europe, I guess it has had a much closer uh, economic or social relationship with the European Union. So, with that in mind, Professor Tsui, do you expect Switzerland uh, to play any role in terms of the relationship between China and the EU? Certainly. As we know, even Switzerland is not a member of the uh, European Union. But indeed, um, economic, um, politics, and some other, uh, including social uh, areas, uh, Switzerland has a very close relations with the European Union. Uh, as we know that uh, once there are some more, uh, you know, cooperative relations between China and uh, Switzerland, mm-hmm. certainly I think it will give some more uh, a model or more uh, positive stimulation to European Union. Uh, for example, once China and uh, Switzerland has this um, uh, free, ag- uh, free trade agreement, yes. it will give some more. I mean, positive. Uh, so I think that uh, not only the uh, uh, free trade agreement, not only the economic issues, or some other, for example, now both China and the European countries were facing the common challenges, including global governance and also uh, some security issue. I think once, once there are some more cooperation, once there are some more achievements between China and Switzerland, certainly I think it will give some more experience shared by some other European countries. At the same time, I think that uh, this uh, maybe three parties cooperation between China, Switzerland, and the European Union, it will give some more potential for this uh, you know, trilateral cooperation. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for joining us as always. That was Professor Tui Hongjian joining us from the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. You're listening to World Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. U.S. regulators say a door that blew away from a Boeing 737 MAX 9 mid-flight may not have been properly secured. 
The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board has released its initial findings from its investigation into an incident on a particular Alaska airline plane last month. The report says four bolts that were intended to lock the unused door to the fuselage appear to be missing. Boeing said it was accountable for what has already happened. New Federal Aviation Administration head Mike Whitaker testified before the U.S. Congress on Tuesday, saying that the agency will put more boots on the ground to monitor the plane maker. It really created two issues for us: one, what's wrong with this airplane,、uh, but two, what's going on with the production、uh, at Boeing. And there have been issues in the past, and they don't seem to be getting resolved. So we feel like we need to have a heightened level of oversight. So, for more on this issue or the latest update, my colleague Zhao Ying is joining us in the studio. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, can you tell us more about this preliminary funding on the part of the uh, NTSB? Uh, I mean, it has been investigating into this incident for about a month or so. Yes, yes.、Um, this is actually the first official report、uh, of how the door plug could have fallen out of the Boeing 737 Max plane shortly after taking off last month. And the report says four bolts that prevented upward movement of the door plug were missing before the plug detached from the plane. And according to the report, the fuselage arrived at Boeing's factory in Washington in late August last year, and the door plug were opened to repair damaged rivets on the fuselage. But it appeared that not all the bolts were put back once the door was reinstalled on the plane after the rivets had been repaired. And a photo shared via text message by Boeing employees. After the rivet work, showed that、uh, the door plug later closed again without three of the bolts, while the location of the fourth bolt was obscured in the photo. And the NTSB said its investigation was still in the process of determining what documents were used to authorize、uh, the opening and closing of the door plug during the rivet replacement. But it also raises fresh questions about whether the company did enough to improve safety after two fatal crashes of 737 Max. Explains in 2018 and 2019. Okay, so my impression is that this preliminary funding have raised even more questions, and they they remain unanswered at、uh, at the moment or at this point. Now, Boeing has already, you know, actually faced a lot of criticism from、uh, social observers over its handling of the 737. Uh, Max, following two very fatal and deadly crashes in 2018 and 2019, respectively. So, I guess many people might wonder on their mind: Has Boeing made any changes to its quality control or internal management after those、um, previous rounds of crashes? Well, I mean, apparently、um, the changes, if there were any, are. Not enough. Although Boeing had been trying to regain confidence following those two fatal crashes, and those involved a Lion Air plane crash in Indonesia that killed 189 people on board, and the Ethiopian airline crash which killed 157 people, and a congressional investigation after those incidents really、uh, revealed flaws in Boeing's design, development, and transparency with the FAA, and even after the Max was grounded and then cleared to fly again, issues. Persisted, including electri-、uh, electrical problems in April 2021 that led to dozens of the planes being suspended from service. And also in 2023, Boeing also dealt with some supply quality problems. And that December, it urged airlines to inspect newer 737 Max airplanes for a possible loose bolt in the rudder control system. And、uh, the Alaska Airlines CEO、uh, Ben Menikuchi said in an interview last month that、uh, the The airline's inspection of its Boeing 737 Max 9 planes revealed that many of the aircraft had loose bolts. And actually, days after the incident, United Airlines also reported that it found loose bolts and other installation issues on a part of some Boeing 737 Max 9s.、Mm. So, by the way,、um, how has Boeing responded to this latest report? Well, Boeing's chief executive Dave Calhoun said in a statement,、uh, responding to the report, that、uh, whatever final conclusion are are reached, Boeing is accountable for what happened. And he also said, and I quote. 
an event like this must not happen on an airplane that leaves our factory.、Uh, we simply must do better for our customers and their passengers. And also,、uh, the Boeing supplier Spirit Aerosystem, which builds、uh, the Max fuselage, also issued a statement saying they will remain focused on working closely with Boeing and、uh, the regulators on continuous improvement in the process and also、uh, meeting the highest standards of safety, quality, and reliability. Okay, so、um, do you think this latest incident that took place in early January、um, has revealed any, say, underlying loopholes or underlying systemic problems within Boeing's management? I mean, sometimes when we talk about a company's、uh, management, it can be just a superficial or technical issue, but sometimes, more often than not, it is also pointing to some fundamental. Flaws regarding its, say, corporate culture. Well, I think you're absolutely right, and and you know some even suggest that Boeing is paying the price for its change to its corporate culture decades ago because it has been shifting away from an engineering focused culture that prioritized safety towards a focus on cost cutting and speed of production. And also, Boeing's increasing reliance on outsourcing over the past two decades also raises concerns about quality control,、uh, because you know, like many other companies, Boeing chose to outsource more and more components. Although internally, Boeing's engineers had warned that、uh, quality control could slip as more work was done by other entities. And moreover,、uh, the decision-making process within Boeing, such as the choice to rush the, the de- development of the 737 Max rather than invest. In a new short-haul aircraft, has contributed to safety and production challenges, and the company has also lost many experienced engineers just when they were needed、uh, the most. And、mm. you know, this brain drain happened because、uh, those engineers they rushed to look in their pensions before rising interest rates、uh, could affect them.、Uh, and when Boeing needs these talents back after the pandemic,、uh, they actually found many positions remain unfilled, and that leaves the company weaker in terms. Of expertise and experience. Yeah, brain drain could be the, a very, very costly issue for any company, I guess. So, what could be the FAA's next step in light of these latest findings? Well, according to FAA's new head Mike Whitaker, who testified before Congress on Tuesday, the regulator will put more boots on the ground, as we said, to monitor the plane maker. And also, the agency is specifically looking at the potential conflicts of interest that come with this long, long-standing delegation of some inspection and certification steps to Boeing. And Whitaker said、uh, the current system is not working because it's not delivering safe aircraft. And he said Boeing's culture and incentives. Needed to be looked at because if you don't have that safety culture, it's hard to make safe airplanes. And he also encouraged Boeing employees to report safety concerns via an、uh, FAA hotline. And he said he will also meet chief executives of the U.S. airlines to discuss how to share information more transparently and improve the safety management systems. Okay, so the FAA is somehow encouraging Boeing's own employees. To to act as a whistleblower, yeah, exactly. To, so so the final question before we let you go, Zhao Ying. Now, of course, no one is a reminder that Boeing is a publicly traded company on stock on stock market exchanges. So, with that in mind, what could be the potential financial or reputational implications for Boeing as a result of this latest incident? Well, actually, we've already heard criticism from some high-profile figures in the aviation industry.、Uh, for instance, the president of Emirates, Tim Clark, said he had seen a progressive decline in Boeing's standards due to management and governance missteps, including prioritizing profit over engineering excellence. And he said Boeing is in what he called the last chance saloon. And also, the United CEO Scott Kirby also lamented Boeing's consistent manufacturing challenges. And he said uh, his company uh, will build a plan that doesn't have the Max 10 in it.、Uh, so although Boeing's CEO has made a commitment to transparency and improvement, but the company's future will really depend on whether they can address these、uh, systematic issues and rebuild confidence among customers, regulators, and the public. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. That was my colleague Zhao Ying joining us in the studio. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back.
The head of the main UN Palestinian relief agency is visiting three Gulf countries this week to rally support. It comes after some major donors of UNWA suspended suspended their funding following an Israeli allegation that some of the agency's staff were involved in this October the seventh attack. UNWA has warned that it might be forced to shut down its operations by the end of this month if funding does not resume. The UN has commissioned former French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna to lead an independent review of UNWA's neutrality. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations with East China Normal University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Professor, let's first of all take a look at these three particular Gulf countries that Anwar's、uh, Commissioner General is visiting over the course of this week. They are the UAE, Qatar, and Kuwait. To what extent do you think these three countries are able to help alleviate this particular,、uh, you know, liquidity crunch or money crunch facing this very agency? Well, these countries have tremendous wealth and resources. They can directly support the agency if they choose to do so. However, there are reports of some reluctance.、Uh, on the one hand, some Arab countries also have called for a review of the agency.、Uh, on the other hand, some of these countries and others in the region altogether already provide billions in aid、uh, to the Palestinians, funds over which they have direct control. Now they seem reluctant to give money to the UN instead of giving it directly to the Palestinians. Uh, meanwhile, uh, some Arabs、uh, seem to view the UNWA as a mechanism for Western countries to compensate the Palestinians for guilt associated with the Holocaust and Western support for the Jewish occupation of Palestine. So ultimately, it might be the case that we'll see some of these Arab countries helping to meet short-term shortfalls, but we can expect they'll be looking for alternative solutions in the future if Western countries don't come back to the table with cash in hand. Hmm. So, talking about the funding suspension facing the agency,、uh, we are talking about somewhere around 15 important、uh, donor countries, including the United States, that have、uh, suspended funding. Do you think they are justified to do so? Well, you know, I think you know there's there's a number of questions here, right?、Uh, are they justified and? and、uh, Um, will this、uh, funding suspicion further、uh, embolden Israel、mm. um, uh, in terms of what it's doing in Gaza?、Yeah. So, first,、uh, there are many factors uh, that have uh, emboldened uh, Israel that have nothing to do with this、uh, relief agency. In other words, with or without this issue, Israel appears committed、uh, to a particular course of action.、Uh, second, Israel has long perceived the UN as being biased towards Palestinians.、Uh, a report、uh, published recently by Al Jazeera asked. Why is Israel at war with the UN?、Uh, furthermore, various groups supporting Israel, including conservative think tanks in the U.S., repeatedly describe the UN as being anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, and committed to destroying Israel. In fact, Israel has been condemned by dozens of UN resolutions for violating human rights.、Uh, therefore,、uh, successfully casting doubt on the UNWA is a significant propaganda victory by itself. And imperiling its operations altogether、uh, is a long-held Israeli、uh, strategic objective, one、mm-hmm. that also aligns with American conservatives who hate the UN for their own reasons. Now, third, whether or not a few people associated with a UN agency with hundreds of local staff were in some way involved in the initial attacks against Israel is a rather spurious reason to cut or suspend funding altogether. Now, the agency provides salaries to a multitude. Teachers, healthcare workers, many, many others. Now, this doesn't mean that all of those who receive support from the agency can be considered agents of the agency, or that the agency should be held collectively responsible for what individuals do.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the U.S., you know, doesn't suspend funding to its allies when some of their associates commit war crimes. The fact that Western countries are, are following this path, nonetheless, is rather striking. Almost willfully abandoning Palestinians in a moment of crisis. And seemingly washing their hands of the matter. Now, this I think is, is, is fair to say, or, or, or indicate that,、mm. uh, that this is、uh, emboldening Tel Aviv. Yeah, and I think actually not every Western country is following suit. Some individual countries, like Spain, they have actually voiced additional support to Anwar, but that's another issue. So. 
Uh, Professor, multiple countries, including China and some Nordic countries like Norway, have voiced、uh, political support in terms of conducting an independent UN-centered、uh, probe into this very allegation by the Israeli side. In your understanding, what kind of issues or factors will be very key in terms of ensuring、uh, the the independence or the kind of neutrality of this particular review? Well, to, to go back to your earlier point, you're right. It, it's unfair to paint with a wide brush.、Uh, Spain and Ireland have both、mm-hmm. uh, committed funds and, and are sticking with it, and they and they deserve to be commended for that. But to, to answer this new question, it's certainly reasonable to propose an independent probe, and it's possible that one. Can be conducted, but actually doing the review will be、uh, extremely difficult.、Uh, one would need honest cooperation from the Israelis and the Palestinians. One would need people who uh, could uh, uh, know well the conditions there, who know the local languages, and so on.、Uh, would any such people be able、uh, to be recognized as independent?、Uh, are the Europeans and the European research groups that have been uh, uh, tasked with this probe、uh, sufficiently capable? Uh, I'm not sure, but I think we can be certain that Israel will not cooperate、uh, reliably.、Uh, in fact, I would suggest that the idea that we need a formal independent review of the UNWA should not distract anyone that we need a formal independent review of Israeli aggression against the Palestinians. Now, credible allegations of genocide have been made against Israel in the Hague, and the ICJ has ordered Tel Aviv to comply with、yeah. provisional measures to prevent genocide. And to enable the provision of humanitarian assistance, but instead of treating this order seriously, Israel and its Western allies have shifted the narrative to whether or not the UN Relief Agency is the guilty party. This is an incredible redirection of public、uh, attention.、Hmm. So, Professor, we still have about one minute and a half、uh, before we let you go. I mean, UNWA was, of course, set、uh, in the year 1949. So, how would you evaluate its contribution, both in history and the present day, to refugees of Palestinians? Well, the agency uh, was funded um, in the wake of uh, the establishment of uh, Israel uh, when 750,000 Palestinians became refugees、uh, in Gaza. The agency. Uh, runs 183 schools, 22 health facilities, and seven、uh, women's centers, among many other、uh, facilities. But it's also its operations also extend far beyond Gaza. They include support for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon.、Uh, consequently, the agency has often been described as providing essential humanitarian aid for more than, for, for more than、uh, seven decades、uh, to a group of people that now number more than seven million.、Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. As always, that was Dr. Joseph Mahoney, professor of political science and international relations, West East China Normal University. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. China has expressed the readiness to participate in the global efforts in terms of promoting the ethical governance of artificial intelligence for the benefit of humanity. Chinese Vice Minister of Education Wang Jiayi made these particular remarks at a UNESCO forum held in Slovenia earlier this week. Representatives from somewhere around 67 countries have convened there to discuss inclusive approaches to artificial intelligence governance. Now, for more on the global governance of the artificial intelligence, as well as this particular. Uh, UN meeting. My colleague Zhao Yang earlier had a talk with Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. So, Ina, thank you for joining us. First of all, what's the current situation of the worldwide progress of AI development? It's in disarray.、Um, countries are trying to come to grips with it. Many people talk about AI, but I don't. Think they actually understand it?、Uh, at the core is this、uh, struggle between profits、uh, that can be made and the problems、uh, that will be created for society.、Uh, there's this issue about data: who owns it? How how can you access it?、Um, how can information be compiled?、Uh, there will be issues about inequality linked to who owns intellectual property. 
uh, education issues, ethics, politics, and economics. And these have to be solved, and they need to be solved in a way that it, uh, reflects a global consensus, not mm -hmm. uh, individual patchwork. Otherwise, it will not work, and there will be a tremendous amount of harm. Mm -hmm. And do you think that all nations, regardless of their size, strength, or social system, should have equal rights on the AI development? And how to minimize the risk of AI development? Well, AI development is about, uh, you know, research and policies, you know, who who owns the data that's created in your country, and then who owns the algorithms uh, that are being used, uh, you know, through these artificial intelligence systems that are making decisions, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So when you talk about equal rights, uh, it's more about equal development. And, uh, you know, there's this concern that there will be a huge amount of global inequality. Those who own uh, the data and the intellectual property will in essence be served by those who don't. So countries are trying to come to grips with, you know, how, how do you address these global social concerns at the same time as allowing companies to be innovative and create solutions for the future. Mm -hmm. And what do you think are the challenges and opportunities in regulating the global AI industry? And how do you anticipate the evolving roles of governments and uh, international organizations in all these issues? Uh, they're basically the, the two questions you asked are the same. Um, you, you have to define AI and uh, develop an AI consensus, and it's, it has to be global. Uh, you have to prevent it from being a manipulative tool for bad actors, um, preventing it from, you know, making in essence arbitrary decisions. Uh, you know, for example, these technologies are being used by hundreds of decisions uh, makers about whether, you know, you have access to loans or you get into a, a company, or, you know, even the job that you get. Uh, they're making decisions, but they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, they're flawed. They're based on uh, whatever that AI bias is. And remember, all of this stuff is created by human beings. So if there's a bias in there, unfortunately, it can be magnified. So there are tremendous uh, issues, but there are also opportunities. You can relieve people from repetitive uh, information gathering work. They'll be free to work on other things. Uh, that will increase productivity. Mm -hmm. You know, systems. Um, you start thinking of manufacturing, logistics, transaction, trust, costs, and time. This will lead to tremendous productivity gains. So how do uh, countries address this? It has to be globally through a consensus. It can't be imposed. Mm. And people are talking about uh, protecting people's privacy, finding the best use of the AI in education, and making sure that it is not used for malicious purpose are uh, imperative. So could you elaborate more on that? Expert teaching and guidance programs represent a much better way of educating people. It's much more individual. Um, the, the AI never loses patience with you, so it can keep t um, basically trying to help you find the answer um, with, you know, until you, you, you find it. And it can try different ways. Mm. So instead of having a teacher just giving a, a lecture, they can really give um, a very individual tutorial on what is necessary so that you arrive at the answers. Um, you know, it, there's also this issue about a trusted reference sources. And so we might end up with something like Wikipedia, uh, which is online, can be monitored, uh, but is also trusted because it's not um, the product of one entity. Mm. Uh, knowing what is factual and what is not is very important. So how do you think we can use or make best use of AI in education? AI in education is is just a, an incredible opportunity. Um, you know, I, I was dyslexic as a child, and uh, the way I learned was very different from other children, and this is true of everybody. So having this individualized, customized approach where you evaluate uh, each child and determine what way they learn best, and then you tailor the curriculum. Remember, we want to teach uh, children uh, skills and knowledge sets uh, but how to best do that um, is very different child to child. This way you can create a customized uh, program which is easy to administer, it's cheap, it can be done online, it could be done on a phone. So it would be uh, globally accessible, uh, creating a system where people can really kind of shine on their own. 
Mm. And the European Union has been very busy working on the AI Act. It has endorsed a legislation governing the、uh, utilization of artificial intelligence recently. So, what are the key points in this newly approved laws, and what are the major goals for this new AI rules? You know, at its core, the EU AI Act、uh, adopts this risk-based approach, where it classifies AI systems into four different、uh, risk categories depending on their、uh, use cases: unacceptable risk,、uh, high risk, limited risk, minimal or no risk.、Um, it's a way of thinking about it. I don't necessarily know that it gets to the heart of the issue, which is really, you know, you need to have allow individuals to create solutions, but at the same time. You don't want those solutions to create bigger problems for society, and that's really、uh, something that governments have to address.、Um, but in this case, since you know the internet is global, it has to be a compact between all governments on a, a global agreement.、Mm-hmm. And do you think there is a race between you know certain countries over setting the global rules and standards in the AI development? And what should the international community do on this front? I think it would be a massive mistake to think that, you know, the、uh, the larger, the bigger powers get to make the rules on something that is so sensitive and important to、uh, the globe. Remember. If you can make all the rules you want for a small、uh, portion of the world, but if the rest of the world has no rules or they feel alienated by the system you've created because they believe it's it's to your benefit、uh, to build wealth for yourself, they will ignore those rules and they'll find ways around them, and that is a huge din- a danger. I mean, you see this already. Poland, Germany, and France have said, "Oh." We have to,、uh, you know, make sure that we're we're in the game, and、uh, we're going to have a consortium, and we're going to make sure that the EU is not eclipsed by U.S. or anybody else. I mean, this kind of competitive, nationalized approach is dangerous. It can lead to、uh, all sorts of conflicts, not only in the internet but also physically. Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute, talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headline news: Officials from the United States and China meet here in Beijing to discuss to discuss economy and trade. Reports says boats were missing from door in Boeing's blowout incident in early January. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees is moving to ask for help from Gulf countries to narrow its funding gap. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes. Download our podcast by searching "World Today." I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.